second, I might ask you, I don't know if I will or not, I don't think I'm allowed to, but if I, if I ask you to take your mask off and just smile at me to let me know that you guys are okay with uh, what's going on here, I might have to do that. I like looking out every now and then and seeing a smile, and right now I get to look out and see, and see just masks. So, but if, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58, and we're reaching a turning point in Matthew. You can see the words there in verse 53, and it came to pass. So this is a change of direction. He's going to go, uh, and no more parables. He's going to go into several different scenes. We're going to see some miracles coming up. But today, I want to show you a very surprising scene. The verses I want to show you today should surprise you. It should shock you. It should make you, I know you got your mask on, but it should make your, your jaws drop when you hear what happens in this scene. Uh, you, you know why it should surprise you? You know why it should amaze you? Because it did Jesus. And that's the title of the sermon today. This, 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 what happened in this scene here today, what happened in these verses, made Jesus say, wow. And it's not very often that Jesus says, wow. And so we need to see this today. I'll tell you how many times Jesus says, wow, in the entire Gospels. But here's one time that Jesus says, wow. I titled the sermon today, the day Jesus was amazed. So let's stand together and let's read these verses, verses 53 through 58. And this is a big statement. What makes Jesus say wow? What, what amazes Jesus? I know a lot of us, and we have several kids in here with us today, we, we say wow a lot. Things amaze us. But what, what is it that, that makes Jesus say, wow, that's amazing? We watched a space shuttle go into space yesterday. And, and me, at 39 years old, I said, wow, that's amazing. What makes Jesus say wow? Let's read it here. Verse 53 of Matthew chapter 13. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished the parables, he's done. He departed thence, and when he was coming to his own country, his own homeland, this is a homecoming, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were, they were astonished. They said, wow, and said, whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not the, his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all right here with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now let me show you something. You don't have to turn there, but in the same passage in Mark chapter 6, it says, And Jesus marveled. He was amazed at their unbelief amazed same passage he said wow i can't believe that they don't believe in me so this is the day jesus was amazed let's pray together and then we'll study this passage father we thank you for your word and god i thank you that it brings uh, normalcy to our lives that we don't know what's going going on out there but when we come in here we're going to open up your word and we're going to study it next verse we're going to see who Jesus is, and we're going to learn about uh, what he does and, and how he responds and, and the way he preaches and the way he teaches and how amazing his grace is. So we get to see Jesus. And just for a minute here today, this week, we get to open up our word and take our mind and our attention off of the chaos and put it on Christ. So God, we want to see him today. That's the cry of my heart. And help me to show the people in this room and the people online Jesus today. We need that more than we need anything else in the world. We need to see Jesus. So God, let us see Him. In all of His magnificence, in all of His glory, let us see Jesus today. And we ask and pray these things in His name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
The word amazed, and I think you guys know the word, our kids know the word, they say the word amazed, I think it may be an overused word where everything becomes amazing. I mean, the space shuttle yesterday was amazing. Uh, we, we, we can call those big events amazing. We can say this, you know, several things in our life are amazing, but the word amazed in, in the Bible, and I, I've looked it up and I've followed it, it, it means to be astonished at something. It means to, be, to, be, to marvel at it, and, and again, I'm going to keep saying that, to say wow, and we should say wow at things that are amazing. And that word amazing or, or wonder or astonish or, or marvel, it is used 30 times in the gospel. 30 times in the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And 28 of those times, it was people being amazed at Jesus. That, that they, they were always amazed at who Jesus is. And we need to be amazed at Jesus. Anytime we lose amazement of who Jesus is, we, we need to be revived is what we need. We need to constantly be amazed at who Jesus is and at what Jesus does for us. We need to constantly be saying, wow, to Jesus. So what did they, what were they so amazed at Jesus at? I mean, 28 times it says in the Bible that they were amazed at Him. I looked it up this week. At His birth, His mom was amazed. I mean, would you not be amazed? I mean, a, a virgin born Jesus Christ, Son of God. Wow, that's amazing. We hear that. We celebrate that at Christmas. But when was the last time you, you said, wow, that's amazing? I, I can go on. They were amazed at his words. I don't have, have time to tell you how many times they said, wow, when he spoke. Never a man spake like Jesus spoke. They were amazed at the works he did. Just a few examples. When he calmed the winds and the seas. They said, wow, the winds and the seas obeyed Jesus. Wow, they were amazed. When he cast out demons, they were amazed. When the cripple walk and the blind see and the deaf hear and the mute speak, they were amazed. At the resurrection, they were amazed. Luke 24 says, when they came to the tomb and it was empty, that Peter and John were amazed. Later on in that same chapter in Luke 24, verse 41, when they saw Jesus in the upper room and He came through the door and it didn't even open, they were amazed at Jesus being resurrected. You go into the book of Revelation and they see Jesus in all of His glory and all of His magnificence and they look at Him and they are amazed. And, and we need to be a people that are amazed at Jesus. Not just at who He is, but at what He does for us. We need to sing amazing grace like we really are that wretch that was saved. We need to sing amazing grace, not in a monotone way, but in a glorious way. Uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that He saved a wretch like you and me. Charles Spurgeon said that while everybody out there is congratulating themselves, I am amazed all the time that I'm saved. Now that's a, we need to be amazed at our own salvation, at who He did, at who He is and what He did for us on the cross, and what He is doing for us now, amazed at Jesus. Never lose that wow factor when it comes to Jesus. There are churches that come in every Sunday and there's no wow, there's no amazing, there's no wonder, there, there's none of that. And that church needs to be revived. How do you revive a church like that? Take Jesus and His Word and set Him forefront in your preaching and say, here He is. Be amazed at Jesus Christ. Never lose that wow in Jesus. Never lose the wow in your salvation. Wow, He saved even me? Wow, that's what amazing grace is. The, the man who wrote amazing grace was amazed that, that Jesus saved him. Never lose that. He is amazing. That's a good statement. I mean, people should be locking that on Facebook right now. Jesus is amazing. 
You should be saying amen in your mask. Amen. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's, who, that's what we should be doing. We should be amazed at Jesus. So 28 out of 30 times, they're amazed at Jesus. And then there is two times, two times only, that it's not them amazed at Jesus, but Jesus amazed at them. You with me there? So it's common for people to be amazed at Jesus, but it's very rare for Jesus to be amazed at us. So what is it? And the two times here, we've got one of them in front of us, what amazed Jesus? If we are to be wowed by Jesus, what is it that we do that wows Jesus? Where he says, wow, I'm amazed at that. And that's the passage in front of us today. Not that we should be amazed at Jesus, and we should, but that he's amazed at, at what they did and how they responded to him. It says in verse 53 that, that he departed, that he left Capernaum, and he walks 20 to 25 miles. It's a pretty good walk. He walks 20 to 25 miles, and where does he go? Look what it says in verse 40, 54. And when he's coming to his own country. I like that. He's, he's going home. Home sweet home. There's no place like home. Who said that? I think Dorothy said that. There's no place like home. Johnny keeps a record of all the people I quote. There's your new one. <laughs> quoted Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. I might even be clicking my heels behind this pulpit. Take me to pound, right? There's no place like home. So he goes home. He goes to Nazareth. This is his homecoming. I can imagine that as he walks into Nazareth, the place he grew up, the place where everybody knew him, the place where he was a carpenter for 30 years with his, with, with, with his father Joseph, his, his earthly father, his adopted father, really. They've known him. His furniture is in their house. Disciples have known him for three years. The crowd for days, they've known him for 30 years. His family is there. His friends are there. Those that are closest to him are there. They knew him. They grew up with him. They're, they, they, they loved Jesus. So how would you expect them to, act, to react to Jesus? When he comes walking into his hometown, you'd expect there to be banners saying, Welcome, Jesus. You'd expect there to be a sign at the front of the entrance of the city that said, hometown of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of man, the sovereign ruler of mankind. This is his hometown. Jesus put this place on the map. We know him. We love him. We believe in him. If anywhere on the, in the world believed in Jesus, it should be Nazareth. So how should they respond? If anybody would believe, it would be Nazareth. It would be his hometown. If anywhere he'd be accepted, it would be in Nazareth. That's what we think. But when he walks in, they reject him. Those closest to him reject him. And that amazes him. Wow. I would think they would believe in me. And he's amazed. It makes him go, wow. He's shocked. So I want to show you this day. I want to show you how they rejected him. I want to show you the response. And there's two lessons for us here. There's an example for the disciples of the parables that he just told them. I told you people would reject, and here's an example of how they reject. And there's also a lesson for us in that we expect the ones closest to us to be the ones that would believe what we say. But that's not always the case. If they will reject Jesus, they will reject us. I'm talking about family, friends, and those closest to us. We can't always expect those closest to us to go right along with us. So let's look at this. I'm going to break it down into three, 
points for you today to show you the day Jesus was amazed. And I want to show you, first of all, just, just as he walks into the, in, into the town there, into, into Nazareth, I want to show you his amazing return. The, the amazing return of Jesus. And it was an amazing return because it says there in verse 54, and when he's coming to his own country, he, he shows up. Uh, and this is, again, the one place in the world that Jesus calls home. He, it was chosen that he would be born and raised right there in the city Nazareth. I want you to understand the attachment to that. I, I talk all the time about pound. I love pound. I have an attachment to, to pound. I'm glad that God chose to put me in pound. I love being a small town pound boy. I've said pound about five times now. I love pound. That's my hometown. And he loved his hometown. He, he comes walking back into his hometown. And it says in Mark 6 that when the Sabbath day come... What did he do? As his custom was, on the Sabbath day, a good Jewish man always went to the synagogue. Always went to meet with the people. That's what they did. So on the Sabbath day, he goes walking into the synagogue where all the local people are gathered to worship God. He didn't go fishing on the Sabbath day. He didn't sleep in on the Sabbath day. He wasn't sitting there watching sports on the Sabbath day. When the Sabbath day came, Jesus, as his custom was, was in the synagogue where he was supposed to be. Under those masks, you guys are saying amen. So he goes to the synagogue. He walks in. I can imagine the place is jam-packed. I've got Mark 6 marked here just to show you. It says in verse 2, when the Sabbath day was come, he, began to, he went to the synagogue and began to teach. So he walks in, normal day, routine. I imagine he sees people that he is familiar with that he hadn't seen in years. Friends he grew up with, friends he played with. I mean, people that, that again, bought furniture off of him and in the carpenter shop. And they're sitting there saying, hey, Jesus ain't seen you in a while. You can imagine somebody going back home and everybody just not even social distancing. And they're sitting there hugging Jesus and talking to Jesus and, and loving Jesus. And they look at him and they say, won't you preach today? <laughs> I like that. They often had guest preachers come in and preach for them. So it's common for them to ask somebody to get up and share. Anytime I, I don't go to other churches often, but if I'm away and I go to a church and I'm on vacation, I carry a sermon in my back pocket. Just in case they look at me and say, hey, you're a preacher, won't you preach today? So that's what happened to Jesus. He walks in and, and they look at him and say, won't you preach today? Won't you get up in front of everybody today? So he does. He grabs a scroll, and it's not even his own scroll, and he gets up and he begins to teach. I want you to picture it in your mind. I gave the children a picture today of Jesus standing up in the synagogue, and he's preaching and teaching to the people. You say, what does he preach? Turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 4. I want you to see this. Because in, in, in Matthew 13, all it says was, and he taught them in the synagogue. That's all it says. Luke 4 is a similar scene here. And I, I want to show you what he does. Luke 4, verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, where he was raised. And as his custom was, see that? Typically, normally, what he would do. He went in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, I like that, he opens the book. That's what a preacher does. When you get up in the pulpit and they hand you a Bible, you open up the book. You need a preacher to open up the book. So he opens up the book, and watch what he does. 
And he found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach. You see that? It's prophesying about the cross, about the Messiah. And he gets up and he, and he reads this in front of them. And he says to preach, and he preaches the gospel. You need to see this. He's preaching the good news. He's preaching the euangelion. He's telling them the good news of the gospel. And it is, watch this, to the, to the poor, to those who have nothing at all, to those who are spiritually bankrupt. I've come to preach the gospel to you, to the lowest of the low, to those who are downcast. I'm preaching good news to you. And he goes on. He that has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. Here he is proclaiming the good news of the gospel of salvation to those who need it desperately. To the poor, the brokenhearted, to the captive in sin, to the spiritually blind, to the, to the bruised. This is good news to the worst of people. And then what does he do? And he closed the book in verse 20. Imagine this scene. He gets up and opens the book. He reads these verses. He closes the book and gives it back to the minister and he sits down. And the eyes of all of them in the synagogue were fastened on him. Again, this is his family, his friends, his loved ones, the ones he grew up with. And their eyes are all gazed at him, fixed on him. They're amazed. And he does what all preachers do. You read, you open it up, you read it, you explain it. And what was the explanation? And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He looks at them as all eyes are on them, and he makes this monumental statement, claiming to be the very one that prophecy is talking about. He stands up in front of them and says, I am the one this is talking about. I am the one preaching the gospel. And you are the poor. You are the blind. You are the ones that are captive. You are the ones that are downcast. You're the ones that need to hear this. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I'm the one who, who, is, who is the one to come. And I'm preaching to you now the gospel. He's saying this is talking about me. I'm here. The one you've been looking for is right here. That's a big statement. And at that moment, and I want to move from this point, but at that moment, Jesus is, and you need to see this because we're coming out of the parables, Jesus in that moment, he is the sower with the seed. The gospel is the seed, and the soul is his hometown people. It's a picture of the souls that we just saw in the parable. He's using this as an example to his disciples who are all standing there beside of him, He's the sower, the gospel is the seed, and the hometown is the soul. This is a living picture of the parable. The greatest preacher, the greatest message that could ever be preached, and he's standing up preaching it to his hometown. You guys can be saved. You guys can have deliverance. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He's sitting there proclaiming the day of salvation. Today you can be saved. Today the Messiah is here. Today you can have forgiveness of sin. Today you can have a promise of heaven. Today, today, today. What a message. I'm picturing it in my mind that I'm saying, wow, I'd love to hear that sermon. So the question becomes, 
how will they respond? The gospel, as I said, that has been preached to them. The seed has been thrown out to them. Jesus is the greatest preacher. He's preaching the greatest message. And now, how will that seed fall? What kind of ground will that seed fall onto? Back to Matthew 13. I want to show you not just his amazing return, but I want to show you the amazing response to Jesus. As now they respond to him. I like this. You're going to have to bear with me on this. This is an amazing response because it said he taught them in the synagogue insomuch that they were, what's that word? I mean, you guys are looking at it. They were astonished. <laughs> it's like Luke 4 said, their eyes were gazed upon him. They, they were amazed at what he just said. I mean, they were blown away. I, I can give you all kinds of terms for this. It blew their mind. They're, they're scratching their heads. They're saying, wow, we've never heard anything like this in, in our lives. Nobody's ever preached like this before. This wasn't expected out of him. I mean, they looked at him and said, why don't you get up and speak, Jesus? You know, you carpenter, <laughs> woodworker. Get up and share something. You've been gone for a long time. Come up here and say something. And he got up and spoke. And when he opened his mouth, it, it wowed them. It floored them. When he opened his mouth, he spoke with authority. He spoke as one, it said that, as one who has authority. When you listen to this, I mean, just you say, what does it mean to speak with authority? If you've ever seen a, a military commander, they speak with authority. They don't whisper at you. If, you. if you've ever, I've never been in the military, but I've seen a lot of military movies. And when they speak, they don't whisper, do they? They don't go there and say, would you please do this for me, please? When they speak, they, they, they have an authority about what they say. And that's what he's speaking with. I think that even when he spoke, he had a, the authority of a, of a finger point. That he's in there saying, here today. He spoke with power. When he opened his mouth, man, it hit like a punch. There was nobody sitting out there that it didn't hit. He didn't miss a punch. Or say it this way, when he wanted to step on toes, he didn't miss anybody's toes. He spoke with grace. Luke 4.22, back to that same passage, it says they were amazed at the, the grace at which he spoke with. The compassion, the care, the love. And I'm giving you this list of the way he preached because that, that's the, the list that I have been given on the way we ought to preach with authority, with understanding, with, with power. There ought to be conviction in what you say. You don't get up there and whisper. You get up there and proclaim. You, you herald the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when people are sitting in the pews, that there will be no indifference. You're calling them to a response. That they will either hate you or they will hug you. But there will be no middle ground. They'll leave there sad or they'll leave there glad. It's one or the other. That's the way it was with Jesus. There was no middle ground. Get up and preach it. Let it loose. Jesus preached. He proclaimed. He heralded the gospel. You say, well, Josh, why do you preach the way you do? Because Jesus preached that way. There's no little talks. <laughs> There's no little chats. There's no discussion. There's preaching. And they were amazed at it. Wow. And then they start questioning. See, so they, they were amazed at how he spoke. And what he said. 
And then they started trying to put together where that came from. (laughs) How did Jesus, who we saw for 30 years, become that? We didn't expect that. So they started asking questions. Look what they say. I mean, there's six questions here. (laughs) I like this. They're trying to figure it out. How did Jesus get this way? Look what he says. And they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Where on earth did that come from? We've never seen anything like that before. The words he spoke, the the works that he did, 30 years and we've never seen anything like that before? Where did he get that from? And then they go down the list. It wasn't his dad. Look what it says. He didn't get it from his dad. His dad was a carpenter. Just a common man. There's no way he got that from him. From his earthly father. Is not this a carpenter's son? And then it says, is not his mother Mary? (laughs) Certainly not from her. With a whisper on the side saying, we even heard that Jesus is illegitimate. (laughs) We've heard it is. He was born out of wedlock. Kind of a whisper on the side. We've heard. One of the worst things that can happen in a church is we've heard. Little, little, little just, a, you know, not, not saying anything, whether it's true or not. I'm not saying it is true. I see that all the time in churches. I'm not saying it's true. Just saying that's what I heard. So it didn't come from the mom. It didn't come from the dad. And his brothers ain't nothing like him. Look at that. They're bringing everybody into this. They are trying to attack Jesus and his message by attacking those around him. Discrediting him. Wasn't his earthly father. It's not his mother, Mary. Certainly not her. And not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. He had four brothers. Not them. I mean, can you imagine? It's like they're sitting there and they're like, look at these guys. They couldn't speak like that. They're nothing like that. And then they even bring his sisters in on it. And his sisters, they're right here with us. Can you imagine their faces? They're nobodies. And I see that and I think, okay, he had four brothers and at least two sisters. There's six or seven people in this family. Me and Steph are still doing okay. People make fun of us. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Steph has a mask on, but I'm sure she's smiling. I'm sure of it. Leave it on. <laughs> you, I mean, you see that. I mean, four brothers and at least two sisters that we, it says sisters, so there's more than one. And they look at him and say, it's not his father, it's not his mother, it's not his brothers, it's not his sisters. And then they end with another question. So where did all this come from? If he didn't get it naturally, Where did that power come from? Where did those words come from? Where did those works come from? Where did Jesus get this at? I think the answer is obvious right in front of them. Clear as a bell. The only explanation is it's not natural. It's supernatural. That it didn't come from his earthly father, the the son of Joseph. Joseph, it came from his heavenly father. He's the son of God. They need to put two and two together here that it's not his family, it's not, it's not his brothers, it's not his sisters. It must be that he is God himself. 
That needs to be the conclusion there. Where did it come from? Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. It's right in front of their eyes. Jesus says in John 10, I say that I'm the Son of God and my works prove it. So right in front of them, they see. I mean, it's obvious. So where did it come from? It came from God. You would think at this moment, this is where I wanted to stop at. In verse 56, as they're trying to figure it out, I think it's a, it's a bookend. They say, where did it come from in verse 54? And then they start looking at it. It's not his father, it's not his mother, it's not his brothers, it's not his sisters. And then they close it or they bookend it with, well, where did it come from then? And right there, I want to put something in there. And that, that's where I want to be, right, right, right in there. I want, I want it to say, and they believed in him. And they said he is God. I want to put it there. I want it right between 56 and 57 for it to say, and they bowed before him and worshipped him as Lord and Savior. I wanted to say that. And they believed in him. But it doesn't say that. It would be, it would be normal. It would be the right thing to do for it to say, and they believed in him. His own people. His own family. And it says... And they were offended at him. Hmm. The word offended. Oh, we, we love the word offended. Everybody's offended by everything anymore. They were offended at him. The word offended means they were scandalized. They were tripped up. Something caused them to say no. Something caused them to say, I can't do it. Just can't believe in him. It's the same word. Watch this. I thought this was amazing. You guys may not. It wowed me to turn to this because I, I look up offended. I want to say, what does the word offended mean? And the closest word used, I mean, it's right here in Matthew 13. Look at verse 21. It may be on the same page in your Bible. Talking about the souls. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receives it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but endureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He's talking about the soul. Jesus' hometown is this soul who with joy received what Jesus said and was astonished by it. Wow, we've never heard anybody speak like this. We love it. But ultimately, they were offended by it. They turned it down. They were unbelieving. This is an unbelieving soul. And you say, what is it that caused them? And I, and I, I sit and thought about it. I thought, what in the world caused them to be offended? At first, they, they received it with joy. And then they were offended. What is it that caused this? And, 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 and I, even up till this morning, I was still trying to figure it out. So I said, what, what are you doing? I was sitting down this morning writing on my notes. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to figure out what is it that offended them? What is it that made them say no to Jesus? There's reasons for everybody. What is the reason that they say no? So I got my notes and I started writing it. And I, and I, I saw it. It's not even hard. It's right in front of our eyes. In verse 57, Jesus tells us why they were offended. And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, here's the reason. Here's why they didn't believe in him. 
A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. The reason they were offended and what tripped them up to the point where they wouldn't believe in him was they were too familiar with him. The old saying says, familiarity breeds contempt. That the, I'll say this, the closer you are to someone, the less you appreciate that someone. And they were too close to Jesus. They looked at Jesus when he proclaimed to be the son of God. And he did. He stood up in front of them and said, I'm, I'm, I'm the son of God. Not the son of Joseph, the son of God. And he stood up in front of them and they looked and said, no, we know him. We know his mom, we know his brothers, we know his sisters, we know Jesus. We saw him in the carpenter shop, we saw him growing up, we, we played in the creek with him, we grew up with him, he played with our kids, he was in our homes. There's no way he is God. There's no way he cannot be God. He's fully human. They knew everything about him. There's no way. They were too familiar with Jesus to believe in Jesus. You say, what kind of application does that give us? They took him for granted. God was in their midst for 30 years and they're saying there's no way we missed it. If that's not proof for the full humanity of Jesus, I don't know what is. That God could be in their midst and they didn't see it. That he grew up, he got sick, he ate with them, he, he played with their kids. The only difference between him and the rest of the kids was he was perfect. Never did a thing wrong, never said a thing wrong. I'm sure other parents in the town were saying, why couldn't you be more like Jesus? When his mom says come home, he comes home. We can't do it, they say. Too familiar. Taking it for granted. Didn't appreciate the one that was closest to them. And I'm going to say this, because it happens all the time, especially in churches like this, where when I get in the van with my kids after we leave, and I look at my boys, and I say, what did Daddy preach today? And they say, Jesus, like it's no big deal. Or I say, what did Daddy preach today? And they say, the gospel, with a frown on their face. Like it's no big deal. And the problem with that is, and I pray about it all the time, is that my kids are so familiar with the gospel, with the Bible, and with Jesus, that they begin to develop that too much familiarity. That it's not as amazing as it ought to be to them. And it happens in our church, where you hear the gospel, the good news, to the poor, to the downcast to those who are in captivity, to those who are spiritually blind. And when you first heard it, it was like the greatest news you've ever heard in your life. But now after years and years and years, you hear it and it doesn't even affect you anymore. You've become too familiar with Jesus. You've become too familiar to the gospel. You've become too familiar to the Bible that when you open it up, there's no more wow to it anymore. There's no more amazement to it anymore. And that's where they were at. And it was too common, too familiar. And they said, I can't do it. I can't do it. There's a warning here to all of us that we never need to lose our amazement with Jesus Christ. It never should become common. It never should quit become being a, a big deal. 
Don't lose your excitement. Don't lose your enthusiasm. Don't let it. Don't lose it. Don't become numb to the gospel. Don't become that ground that with joy you, you initially believed it and loved it. But over time it became nothing to you. Become desensitized to it. Where you no longer feel it. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be you. That we become numb to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard a preacher say the other day, why in the world do preachers preach the gospel every Sunday? And my thought immediately became because we need it every Sunday. Every Sunday you need to hear that this salvation is not about you. Salvation is not in who you are and what you do every Sunday. As you go out there and the world tells you it's about your performance, it's about who you are, and it's about what you do, and they try to, to make you live up to something, and we don't have to do that. We come in here, and it's not about who you are. It's not about your performance. It's not about your works. It's not you trying to live up to some standard that the world sets on you. No, no, no. It's all about Jesus Christ. I can't meet the standard. I, I can't get high enough. It's not my works. It's not who I am. It's all about Jesus. We need, we need to be amazed at that. We need to be in awe of that. We need to say wow to that. We need as a church always to be amazed at Jesus. That's where our worship comes from. Churches today trying to build up worship and make it emotional and give you goosebumps on your arms. Trying to make people worship. Just show them Jesus. And they'll sing. They'll show up. They'll love it. Preach Jesus to them. Never let it become not exciting. I got to hurry. I heard a preacher say one time if you make the Bible boring, if you make it not exciting, if you make Jesus out to be just some dull thing that you go through in church, you're doing a great, great injustice to Jesus and his word. When we open it up, it ought to be every Sunday. Wow. Wow. So they responded in unbelief. I got to move on. 30 years with him. They knew him, they knew his family. Nazareth was probably Nazareth was probably the, one of the most I don't say probably it was the most privileged place and the most privileged people in the history of the world. And they would look at Jesus and they'd say, "We know you." But deep down in their heart, they had no idea who he was. And I hope that isn't us. That we could stand up and we could give you Google facts about Jesus. <laughs> but we have no idea who he really is. They refuse to believe in full light and evidence. And they rejected Jesus. Let me move to the third point. We saw the amazing return. We saw their amazing response. I want to show you Jesus' amazing reaction. How he reacted to them. It amazed him. As he walked out of that synagogue, he was walking out with his jaw dropped. Wow. I can't believe how they responded. Because he didn't just walk out of that temple or that synagogue. Luke 4 says they threw him out. We can't believe that you think you're God. No way. They tried to throw him off a hill. 
But what does he do? This is a tragedy of, of unbelief. It says in, in, in verse 57, they were offended at him. Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and his own house. And look what happens. He leaves. This is the tragedy. He leaves. And I'm looking for it. I, maybe somebody could find it and show me because I'm not seeing it anywhere. But it, I, I'm going to keep on reading through Matthew. We'll keep on preaching through it. I've been in Mark. I've been in Luke. I'm trying to find it. But I can't find anywhere that it says he ever came back. Maybe you can show me. Maybe some, I can be corrected on that. I'm just not seeing it yet. But it looks like to me this was their last chance. It looks like to me this is the last opportunity that they had. This is his last time that he stands up in their synagogue and preaches the, the good news of the gospel to them that they can be saved and have their sins forgiven. This was their last chance. No more chances. He never comes back. He never preaches there again. They never hear the good news again. He may walk past them. He may walk through them. But he'll never be in the synagogue standing up, opening the book and preaching the gospel to them ever again. He moves on. The sun has set on their day and the door of opportunity has been shut and they didn't believe in him. We never need to become complacent with the opportunities Jesus gives us. Like you have another day. The gospel is a today message. Tomorrow, the old preacher says, is the devil's day. Today is God's day. He walks away. And in verse 58 it says, he walks out of his hometown. Don't be cold and heartless about this. I tried to set that up where I'm telling you how much he loves that town. How much he loves those people. His mother, his brothers, his sisters are all there. And he walks away. He moves on. And it says, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's one of the most heartbreaking things you'll ever hear. Because I said it on two things here. He could have. And, and he would have. But he didn't. Do you see that? Can you imagine what he would have and could have done there? There could have been a, a, a revival in Nazareth. Or an awakening in Nazareth. Or a reformation in Nazareth. Unlike anything the world has ever seen. If they'd only believed. But they didn't believe. So he didn't do anything there. Do you see the difference between belief and unbelief? I mean, it's the difference between heaven and hell. Saved and not saved. They refused. And in return, He refused. No miracles there. Mark 6 says He done a handful. No teaching there. No blessings there. He could have healed every disease in Nazareth. He could have. Anybody doubting that? This is not a, a, a limitation on His power. He could have healed every disease in Nazareth. He could have been in the synagogue like he'd done in other places and every demon-possessed person they brought in cast out. Every blind person now sees, cripple now walk, the deaf now hear, the mute now speak, the dead are even raising. He could have. He could have. But they refused. He could have delivered them from demons. He could have moved mountains. He could have, get this, forgave their sins. Bringing them to Him and saying, 
Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You're escaping hell. You're entering into heaven. You are forgiven. He could have. This is not a power problem. We know he could have. This is a belief problem. They didn't believe. Unbelief is the ugliest sin in the world. We talk about sin. We all have our pet peeve sins that we think are worse than the others. And you know whose sins we think is worse than others? The ones we're not committing. <laughs> I never hear anybody say my sin's the worst sin. It's that guy's sin's the worst sin. Unbelief is the worst sin. Unbelief's the ugliest sin. Unbelief is a, a fatal sin. Write this down. Unbelief is a damning sin. You know what? You don't want to know why you're going to go to hell? It's not your sin. We're all sinners. It's your refusal to believe in Jesus that will send you to hell. Unbelief sends you to hell. You know why it's the worst sin? You say, why is that the worst sin? I thought murder was. I thought abortion was. I thought racism was. No, unbelief is the worst sin because it rejects the evidence that is right in front of your face. It says no to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he left them. In their unbelief. He left them to the consequences of their unbelief. You want, you want to not believe in me? Fine. This is the worst statement. I had a hard time writing it down. You can see I've scribbled out things. I'll show it to you after church. He left them in their sin and on their, on their way to hell. His hometown. And Mark 6, 6 says at the end, and he was amazed. He walked out there shaking his head. I can't believe that they didn't believe. Have you ever said that? I can't believe that they didn't believe. I can't believe. I, I, I've, I've, I've preached sermons. I, I've maybe preached one or two good sermons in 10 years here. <laughs> good gospel messages. That, that's in my estimation. Knowing lost people are in the pews. Giving an invitation and I'm thinking there's no way in the world they won't believe. No way. No way. And they sit in their unbelief. And they walk out in their sin and on their way to hell. And I can't believe they didn't believe. There may be somebody sitting in here today that's lost, an unbeliever. And you've seen the, the obvious, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. And you're going to be called here in just a second to believe in him. And you may walk out of this, this auditorium today and in your unbelief. And I will be amazed that you didn't believe. He felt amazement, shock. Those he loved and those he was closest to rejected him. This shows me that Jesus isn't cold and heartless. There's emotion. He was disappointed. Can you imagine that? It disappointed Jesus. Hmm. He is experiencing the depths of emotions just like you and me experience. He gets it. That when you and, you and me get frustrated over a loved one who won't believe, and the emotions hits us deep, and we are so disappointed, why won't they believe? Understand this, Jesus in heaven understands every emotion you're going through. Every bit of it. Why doesn't my child believe? 
Shouldn't they believe out of, out of anybody else? I, I mean, I can preach and others will believe, but my kids won't believe. Why? And you're disappointed and you're heartbroken and you're amazed. You're shocked. You're surprised. And Jesus in heaven, I know what you're going through. I faced it too. He sympathizes with us because it happened to him. You have a sympathetic Savior that when you cry out to him, why doesn't my spouse believe? Why? I understand. Why doesn't my parents believe? Why? Why, why don't my friends believe? Why don't my co-workers believe? You'd think they'd believe me. I'm telling them the truth. Why? Jesus, I get it. I understand the disappointment and the broken hardness that you're feeling right now. I was amazed too. That somebody that close to me could turn me down. Because that will happen to every single one of us. It'll even happen to the disciples. And that's the reason he's teaching them this lesson. Sometimes the hardest soul is the ones that are closest to you. And Jesus was amazed. I'm going to close. I started with two times Jesus was amazed. And I don't know if you guys are sitting out there thinking, well, what's the other one? I wanted to leave you on, on the edge of your seat thinking, well, Josh, better tell us the other one. I want to know the other one. Because the first one is the unbelief in Nazareth. It, it, it's amazing. And, and I, I just said that. How, how could they not believe? And, and I think it's amazing here today that I, as I'm looking out across this room and even looking out on Facebook here today as, as you know, thousands upon thousands of people are watching, right? <laughs> And there may be somebody that's an unbeliever on Facebook watching. There may be an unbeliever sitting in here. There may be a kid sitting here. And they're hearing the gospel and understanding it. And they're being convicted by it. And my question to you is, how can you not believe? You see who He is. You see that He's the Son of God. You see that He's the Savior of men. You see that He went to the cross and died on behalf of our sin. And all you have to do is believe in Him. And you can be saved. Your sins can be forgiven. All that. The riches of heaven will be opened up to you if you believe. How could you not believe? Oh my! Was it not amazing that people don't believe? So if you're sitting here today and you're an unbeliever, I call you to believe in Jesus. Put your full faith and confidence in Him. Charles Spurgeon said, one of my favorite quotes of his, Upon a life I did not live, and upon a death I did not die, I place my full trust and hope of eternity on Jesus Christ. That's what I call you to do today, to believe in Him. And I'd be amazed, amazed, if you didn't believe. You say, Josh, you still haven't told us what the second one is. Matthew chapter 8. If the first one is the unbelief in Nazareth, the second one is belief. He's amazed at unbelief, and the second one is he's amazed at belief. I, I, I like this. Matthew 8. I, I'll read you the passage and I'll close. i got four minutes. I've got extra time today. <laughs> I'm not rushing. It's not like you guys are dying to take those masks off or anything. And when Jesus entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, a Roman centurion soldier, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saying, says unto him, I will come and heal him. 
The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. You see even the amazement of Jesus there? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only. Just say the word, Jesus. I believe that if you just said the word, my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He believes that Jesus has the power to do and to say whatever he wants to. He believes there's power there. And Jesus said, when Jesus heard it in verse 10, he marveled. Same word. Amazed. At what? And he said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not at all in Israel. I have not seen faith like this anywhere. This guy knows so little about me, but he believes in me so big. Nazareth knew so much about me, and they didn't believe in me at all. Do you see the amazement? Which side would you rather be on? The side that knows so much, but doesn't believe. Or this side over here that knew so little and believed so big. I want to be on the side. I want our church to be on the side of. Because the more we know, seems like the less we believe in. The less we trust in him. No, this guy right here knew so little. But he knew he had the power. He knew he had the authority. He knew he was sovereign. He knew he was saving. He knew he was healing. And Jesus looked at him and said, I've, ne- I've not seen faith like that anywhere in all of Israel. He's not even an Israelite. He's not even a Jew. He's not even been in the synagogue. He's not even been taught this growing up. But he believes in me? Wow. Wow. Do you see that? Oh my, there's so many people in churches today that know so much, but they don't believe. And then you get out there in the world and there's sinners who I'm not even worthy to, to even go to church. And you look at them and tell them the good news and they believe. And Jesus says, wow, I want to go on and read this this next verse. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. They're going to hear about this man. They're going to hear about his faith. We hear about the faithlessness of Nazareth, but we hear about the faith of the centurion. I love that. That the two things that amaze Jesus is unbelief and belief. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out in the outer darkness. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, get this, get this, get this. In Nazareth, he did no miracles there because of their unbelief. But here he is with the Roman centurion. And what does he do? He says, go thy way as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. He did a miracle there. Do you see what belief does? Belief opens the door to heaven. Belief pours out the blessings of heaven. And I'm not talking about monetary blessings. I'm talking about spiritual blessings. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places are poured out on those who believe. He'll take care of you. He'll save you. He'll watch over you. He'll forgive your sins. You'll get out of hell. You'll get to enter into heaven. Oh, the doors of blessing are opened up to you if you'll believe. 
But those doors are closed to those who don't believe. You don't get those things. Oh, that we would be a church that believes deeply in Jesus Christ. In the midst of a chaotic nation, you know what we do? Trust in Jesus. I believe that if we believe in Him and trust in Him and rely on Him, that the doors of heaven will be opened up unto us and He will do a mighty work here. But our unbelief can shut it. So you tell me, Belief or unbelief? That's your choice. Believe in me and be saved. Don't believe in me and be doomed. It's an easy choice, is it not? I think every one of us here today, as I close in prayer, we ought to say, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. That's for the lost people. You say, I don't know how. Help my unbelief. Help me to believe. Open my eyes to see. Open my ears to hear. Open my heart to receive. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. That's me this week. Oh God, help me in my unbelief. Help me to believe more. Help me to believe deeper. Help me to believe stronger. Help my roots to go down. Help me to have a foundation that believes in you when there's chaos all around me. Help me to believe when there's a pandemic. Help me to believe when there is, is, is looting and rioting going on across our nation. Help me to believe when there's hatred. Help me to believe when there's violence. Help me to believe when nobody else to believes. Help me to hold strong. That belief doesn't come from within me. That belief comes from the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God working it in me. So I call you today. I'm going to close there. i got more notes, but I'm done. Very simply, very easily, every single one of us in this room and every single one of us on Facebook needs to get down on our faces and pray, Lord, help my unbelief. Help us to believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what it teaches us, the depths of it. God, I was amazed at this passage this week. It is overlooked. I, there's no commentaries on it. People don't talk about it. People don't preach it. But God, it was, it was a fantastic passage. And God, I pray that you would, in, in, in this church now, in us, help us to believe. And I'm not talking about a salvific belief. I will in just a second. But right now I'm talking just about believing in you every day. Trusting you every day. Relying on you every day. Knowing your power. Knowing your, your provision. Knowing your peace. God, help us to believe. Help us in our unbelief. Please. Across this room today, Christians help our unbelief, please. And God, when it comes to salvation, there may be people in this room that are unbelievers. May today their eyes be opened, their ears be, be opened, their hearts be receptive, and today they would believe in your Son. And there's people on Facebook that are watching. I'm amazed that they would carry on for an hour and reach to this point. If they're watching now, if they're watching later in the week, May God, you use this sermon and use this passage that this gospel would fall upon good ground on Facebook. And that people would believe and be saved. This is a heaven and hell issue. Believe or not. So may we all, God, believe. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.